0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mohler, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Just who are we? Are we a mind, a soul, a body? This is one of the most perplexing questions of the modern age, and it's a question that is addressed by several from different fields of cognitive science, of psychology, psychiatry, language studies, and all the rest. Rarely are all of these brought together in one person, but that one person is someone with whom we're about to speak. Stephen Pinker is Harvard College professor and John Stone family professor of psychology at Harvard University. You probably know him by his books and his appearances in the media. Previously, he taught at Stanford and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His research subjects include visual cognition and the psychology of language, for which he's won prizes from the National Academy of Sciences. He is known as one of the top public intellectuals in the world. He was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World Today. His latest book is The Stuff of Thought, Language as a Window into Human Nature. Dr. Pinker, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. If you are to, uh, to think of your own thinking and the shape of, of your thought, where do you think you begin with first principles? Where, where does your worldview find its, its grounding?
1: Uh, it, the, um as a, a scientist who's interested in the human mind, it would start from the uh, idea that the mind is a product of the activity of the brain. The brain is a physical organ, the, probab- probably the most complex object in the universe, certainly the most complex object in the known universe, with 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion connections, and that uh, the uh, that all of our... Uh, thoughts, emotions, desires, drives, feelings consist in activity in the uh, this magnificent organ called the brain. Uh, the brain is shaped in part by the uh, genes during embryonic development, uh, then uh, as soon as it 's active begins to process information. Environment, information from the five senses, information from the surrounding culture, from other people, and that the genes, in turn, just going back uh, one more step, were uh, selected over the course of biological evolution for the um, shaping the brain from primate uh, ancestors to the the special demands of a human lifestyle that is cooperating with one another, uh, figuring out how the world works, developing and technologies exchanging information with language so that that in uh, in about two minutes is uh my my general approach to understanding the human mind
0: well that's a fascinating place to begin i I think in terms of first principles uh what, what emerges to my mind out of that is is the fact that you are looking at the human brain from basically uh, at least by my observation a naturalistic set of assumptions you're you're assuming that the brain is, is self-explanatory just in terms of itself, and, and that's pretty much the way you see the larger question of, of human nature, isn't it right? Uh,
1: yes, I think that human nature is a topic in science, just like uh, the formation of volcanoes or the uh, distribution of butterflies. It's the, uh, the, the study of one organ in one uh, species, and the naturalistic approach is indeed the one that I take, it's uh, it's an assumption, but it's a bit more than an assumption because reality also... Tells us whether our assumptions are are warranted, whether we're barking up the wrong tree, or whether our assumptions seem to be a good match with what we're studying out, out there in the world. In and, this case, the the
0: human mind. So, as you follow your your assumptions in terms of of your empirical science, uh, you, you you find basically the the validation of the, of those prior assumptions.
1: That's right, because uh, you don't want to stick with your assumptions all your life. They may be wrong. You want the, the point of science is to get some uh, echo or feedback from the world telling you whether your assumptions are reasonable and and when you have to revise them.
0: In your book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, you, you really offer a, a world view. I would say, in terms of, of understanding humanity and the larger questions. You also deal with many of the most controversial issues that are of, of public debate today. But what really fascinates me is how you very directly deny what you uh, what you characterize by going back to uh, the idea of a ghost in the machine. You you really see no dualism whatsoever. In other words, you don't believe there is such a thing as a soul.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, I don't believe it in, in the sense that I don't believe it's separate from the activity of the brain.
0: Well, let's play that uh, out in terms of what that means. So, so all of our consciousness, uh, all all of our, uh, our our perceptions of agency and. Uh, and emotion, intuition, uh, analytical, critical thinking, these are all basically biological processes.
1: Uh, yes, they're all, they're all completely biological processes, I would say. Of course, they're biological processes that, that thrive on information from other people. That's why uh, we have education and debate and discussion. Uh, it's like the, the software of the brain has to get uh, inputs from other brains, and, uh, such as what you and I are doing right now. We we uh, uh, ask each other questions. That uh, when we do that, we are affecting each other's brains. When we learn something from one another, that involves microscopic changes in our brains. Uh, so it's ultimately all changes in the brain. Although it's not that brains are isolated. We're not. Our brains don't float in vats. Thank goodness <laughs> they're uh, embedded in bodies. The bodies. Uh, talk and communicate with other people. And so the brains become coordinated with shared uh, ideas and assumptions and beliefs, thanks to all of the cultural transmission that we do via language and other channels of communication.
0: Now, one of the arguments you make in the blank slate is that this uh, this form of biological reductionism does not lead to a denial of moral agency. Uh, What you specifically deny is that this implies determinism.
1: Uh, quite right, that the uh, the brain, first of all, being so immensely complex, is not going to be uh, completely predictable, or, uh, and, and in that regard, it's uh, like the weather, only more so. I don't think we need to invoke any magic in talking about what makes rainfall or, or temperatures rise and fall. It's, it's all physics, but the physics is so fantastically complicated that we couldn't possibly know the, the weather hour by hour. Uh, by calculating it you know, a few uh, weeks in advance. so And that is even more true of something as complex as the brain. The other feature of the brain is because it, uh, it does take in information from the environment, as I mentioned before. Some of the information that it can take in is uh, other people's reaction to our behavior, whether they hold us responsible. If we have a society that says, if you, uh, uh, if you harm other people, if you, you rob a liquor store, we're going to throw you in jail, well, knowing that the brain is going to take that into account, and one hopes uh, be less likely to rob liquor stores or to exploit other people, so I, I believe that moral responsibility is completely compatible with a naturalistic view of the brain as a biological organ
0: so the the matter of moral decision making here or of uh, the, the, uh, the the act of moral agency is is basically how one responds to information that the brain should be able to understand in terms of a moral context or what we might call a moral context.
1: Exactly right. I think we have some moral intuitions that might even be innate. You see, even in small children, acts of of kindness and generosity and helping, uh, I think that compassion towards certainly our our children, our family, our closest friends seems to be a human universal and and there are good reasons to think that that is one of the gifts of evolution. On the other hand, if you leave people just with what nature gave them they 're not going to be nearly as kind and, and nice and generous as uh, as we would all like, and that 's why we have laws and moral codes and shame and praise and gossip and uh, ostracism, to say nothing of uh, police and prisons
0: now, what about the uh, the idea of nihilism you You straightforwardly address the fact that uh, that many persons would attach a necessary nihilism. Uh, as uh, as an implication of this kind of, of physicalist understanding of the human consciousness. But you suggest that isn't so.
1: That's right. I think that there's, um, I, and that that is one of the, what I consider a, a fallacy that I address in the blank slate, namely that um, the uh, even if the mind is uh, a product of the brain and the brain is a product of evolution, there are all kinds of things that give our lives meaning and purpose. Uh, uh, for me, for one thing, figuring out how it all works, or being part of a wonderful enterprise that tries to figure out how it all works has, uh, I think, a, 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 a gives, gives life a, a thrilling purpose. But more generally, there's a moral purpose to expanding our circle of, of concern and empathy and sympathy to other sentient uh, creatures. That, for one thing, it's uh, work in neuroscience and biology that tells us that all uh humans are made of the same stuff and and feel the same pleasures and pains and so that uh encourages us to extend kindness to uh to, to babies and to people in other cultures and people of other races and and to a large extent to Members of other species, uh, other animals have the same brains, uh, more or less than we do. We have every reason to think that they feel pleasure and pain, and that commends a, a moral consideration for the interests of animals. Pushing it even further, uh, and this is not so much science but just kind of ra- rationality. Uh, when you when you think about uh, what uh, how how we behave with to, with regard to one another, uh, we. As soon as we're in conversation with one another, we have to take each other's interests into account. If I'm talking to you, trying to persuade you of how to treat me, uh, appealing to your reason, you you shouldn't step on my toe or, or run me over with your car just because you think it would be fun. Uh, I demand that you not do that. Well, that compels me not to do it to you either, since there's nothing special about me just because I'm me that differentiates me from you. It's basically the intuition behind the golden rule, and when you realize that humans don't innately follow the golden rule, uh, but the more you reason with one another, the more you learn from the lessons of history, the more you see that you, as a reasoning being, are have no choice but to follow the golden rule if you want to claim to be rational and if you want to press your interests with other people. That I, I gives a, a very profound. Uh, a meaning to the human purpose. It means constantly struggling with the fact that innately I'm going to be selfish, but my reason tells me I really shouldn't be selfish. That that's a struggle that that all of us deal with all our lives.
0: The thinking of nihilism as a worldview. It it would seem to me that it's a difficult thing to avoid in the end. If uh, if if all of life and consciousness is basically something of a, of a cosmic uh, accident, uh, however fortuitous, at least for us. What is the grand meaning of all of this or is there any grand meaning to this at all?
1: i don 't think there's a there, I think there are two questions that, that uh, one has to keep distinct. one of them is, does the universe have a grand meaning or a cosmic purpose and there I would say no uh, it doesn 't that's that's a, the, the whole everything we 've learned from science says that the universe unfolds according to physical laws and it does not care about uh, uh, about puny human beings that 's not the same thing as saying that humans have no purpose. Uh, I have a purpose. I, I like to think that it's a purpose that I share with, with many other people. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a human being. I care about my own well-being, and that commits me to caring about the well-being of others. Uh, I have a, a, a drive to increase human knowledge and well-being and beauty. Uh, those are human purposes. The, the, the solar system may not care about them, but, but I sure do, and I, and I suspect that most of the listeners care about them too. So uh, the reason that I think this does not lead to nihilism is that uh, the la- absence of a, of a cosmic purpose, of a purpose to the universe, doesn't say that there's no such thing as a human purpose.
0: Well, that's a very interesting distinction there. So you're going to argue that there is a real purpose to human existence uh, corporately and, and individually that is separate from the larger question of, of cosmic meaning. Uh, so in, in some sense, you're, you're arguing over against uh, the, uh, the atheists who would claim that nihilism is the, is the absolute necessity of, uh, of the atheistic worldview.
1: I think um, there are very few atheists, I think, who would say that. Uh, I suppose perhaps uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the German philosopher in the late 19th century, perhaps. But most of the atheists that I know would call themselves humanists. That is, and they're very far from, from nihilists. They they believe that there are things that are absolutely worth striving for. Uh, and uh, they basically boil down to human happiness and flourishing, uh, that is the ultimate goal: is that uh, that people uh, be as as free of suffering and uh, and pain and oppression as possible, and as best able to pursue their own happiness and meaning as long as they don't infringe on the happiness and, and meaning of other people. So it's not nihilist. But it doesn't mean, it's not a morality certainly that comes from, say, uh, scripture or organized religion. Though it may be compatible with it in some some ways, but it's it's definitely not nihilistic.
0: So it's a form of humanism, uh, absolutely without transcendence, uh, without any kind of uh, of theistic uh, uh, grounding for that humanism at all, which leads yes, that's me. Right leads me to a, a, a question of great interest to me. How would you, as a scientist and as a public intellectual, explain the, uh, the for instance, the persistence of, of a, a traditionally Christian understanding of, of the human being, of human nature, and of, of human consciousness and moral reasoning? It
1: why, why, um, why are so many uh, people uh, committed Christians?
0: Well, that, that would be one, one aspect of it. But the, even, even beyond those who are committed Christians, there's a basic uh, – well, I guess you you might call it a dualistic understanding of human consciousness. In other words, the, the idea yes. of, of, of at least the ghost in the machine uh, seems to be extremely uh, deeply rooted uh, in, in most of our thinking and, and th- those of our neighbors.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, and I think I, I would say that that's a very interesting uh, fact of our psychology, that we can't help but be dualists when, when we think about other people. There's a, a collaborator of mine, Paul Bloom, who wrote a book called Descartes' Baby, arguing that we are all uh, uh, innately dualists. Uh, and um, for one thing, we experience our own consciousness, and it's very hard not to project and which is very mysterious to us here from the inside, because when i 'm looking around uh, i don 't feel like a brain, I feel like I'm, I feel like a person i, I don 't when I see a red object in front of me i don 't think the back of my brain is firing in certain patterns I just see oh there 's a red object in front of me, so the the workings of our brain are are hidden from us it 's not only uh, natural, and also when I deal with other people. I can't deal with them like they're robots or or wind-up dolls. I deal with them uh, as if they have thoughts and feelings that they experience the way I experience my own, and that's probably necessary for us to uh, get along as as uh, well as we do. And also, there's in a sense until the revolution in in neuroscience in the uh, about 100 years ago, dualism was actually a pretty good scientific theory. Because when you think about it, you know, we dream. what happens when we dream? Well, our body's in bed the whole time, but some part of us seems to be up and about in the world. Uh, what about uh, a death? Uh, the, a person can be walking around uh, one moment and then uh, lifeless another. Uh, the body, as far as we can tell, looks the same it's what has happened well it's natural to think that some invisible part that animates the body. The soul has, has left the body, has parted company, and that's a not a bad explanation if you have to explain what you see with your own eyes. I think more recently, in the last hundred years, we have a, a better theory, namely... Bodies contain brains. The activity of the brain is not something you could tell unless you have all the tools of modern science. You could detect things like brain waves and neural firing and and the the chemicals that that power the brain. So now we have a a much better theory that that, um, the mind uh, consists of activity of the brain. But for most of human history, that knowledge just... uh, wasn't there science hadn't advanced to that point. Dualism was a perfectly reasonable theory.
0: As I was listening to Steven Pinker speak, what struck me was how consistent he is with the, the worldview that he holds, how, how honest he is about how he arrived at his initial consideration and then how he sees this playing out in his research and in his further thought. One of the most important things we have as human beings is the opportunity to share and exchange ideas. One of the ways that is made possible is through the publication of books, and Steven Pinker's list of books is noteworthy not only for the fact that they are substantial, but for the fact that they are read. That's why I'm looking forward to addressing other issues from his writing and research with Steven Pinker. Professor Pinker, you have, uh, have covered the waterfront of so many different issues in your writing and research. Uh, after all, you have a great deal to do with how words are defined in, in the dictionary. You, you have a great interest in language. How would you define the importance of human language? Or, or to make the question slightly differently, as I, as I read your work, it appears to me that one of the reasons that you can draw a distinction between human beings, according to your thought, and other sentient or conscious creatures is that we are the creatures with language.
1: That's one of the things that makes humans so unusual in the natural world. Uh, I think it's not the only thing that makes us unusual, but it's certainly the, the first one that you notice. So humans have language. Other creatures don't. They, they certainly communicate. They, they bark. They squeak. They, uh, they they Twitter. They whistle. But what they don't have is grammatical language. The ability to convey new, complex messages where the meaning of the message uh, can be computed from the meanings of the individual signals that is words and the way and crucially the way they 're combined that 's the grammatical part, and that allows us to exchange an infinite number of uh, ideas about all kinds of subject matters now the reason I say it 's not the only thing that makes humans uh, unique is that if you simply took a chimpanzee and you somehow managed to inject language into it, you still wouldn 't have a human being because humans also have much richer mental lives in the first place. We, we figure out how the world around us works, and we parlay that knowledge into uh, technologies. We're also uh, social and moral creatures. We cooperate uh, with other members of our species, even if we're not biologically related to them. Uh, something that's actually pretty unusual among animals we, and we have moral uh, emotions about other people. We, we feel righteous anger. We feel gratitude and, and awe and admiration and trust. Uh, uh, this complex, I would say, of social and moral emotions, technical know-how and language, that tr- triad, that threesome is what makes uh, humans unusual.
0: And where do these things come from? Is is this just, according to your thinking, the product of an evolutionary uh, system of of development, uh, a trajectory that wasn't necessary but nonetheless uh, happened?
1: Uh, Yes, that's right. I think that there were – uh, ancestors of uh, of humans and common ancestors of humans and chimpanzees. Uh, chimpanzees are our closest relatives. We we share ninety eight point five percent of our DNA and a lot of our our uh, skeleton and brain structure. Uh, but and there may were some some prerequisites in place chimpanzees are already pretty uh, unusual animals because they're, they're smart, they have hands, they have uh, color vision and 3D vision, they cooperate socially, they make uh, primitive tools. So if our common ancestor was in any way similar to modern chimps, that kind of gave them a head start. And then um, it's, uh, being, being smart is a very useful thing. Uh, you can outsmart other animals. You can devise traps. You could, uh, in a sense, outsmart plants. We don't usually think of plants as, our, uh, as, as being the kind of thing you can outsmart, but plants are filled with poisons and toxins and bitter substances. And um, so-called primitive peoples, tribal peoples all over the world, have developed clever techniques for making plants edible, like like fermenting them or, or soaking or cooking. So there are lots of ways in which, if you're trying to eke a living out of an environment... Being smart is a useful thing. Being social is a useful thing because, among other things, you can share your discoveries and you can profit from other people's discoveries. Language is the way to to do that. Um, Cooperation allows you to do things that, that acting individually wouldn't allow you to do so. There are a number of advantages to uh, being social and being uh, smart that uh, that propelled the way. The reason that other another reason that other organisms haven't uh, become as intelligent as we have is that all organisms face the a cost benefit trade off. It's great to be smart, but uh, a brain is a big, expensive organ. It uh, it uses up a huge amount of oxygen and um, and calories. It uh, makes childbirth difficult because you've got this enormous head of a baby that has to get through the birth canal. It makes us vulnerable to to falls and and brain damage. So it's always a a, a trade-off in any lineage, whether the evolution favors getting smarter at the expense of this uh, cumbersome brain, or just relying on instincts that have uh, worked for so many millions of years, and for reasons that I've... uh,
0: no, I was going to say that uh, that one of the things that I appreciate about your uh, your writing is, is is your candor. I want to, I want to test something with you here. A, a good many, if if not a majority, of contemporary uh, proponents of evolution uh, su- suggest that there's no necessary linkage between biological evolution and and social Darwinism. And uh, yet, when I read your work, I, I find a pretty candid assessment of of. Of how things uh, related to questions of gender and and uh, children and other things, uh, you seem to think that that biological evolution does imply a, a, a certain understanding of of other things as well.
1: I think it 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 informs a lot of our uh, our grappling with these issues. So I mean, gender would be an example. Uh, I think that. It, the, the, the science of Biology says that men and women are probably are not indistinguishable. There are some differences between men and women now of course, this is for for many people this is kind of obvious, like you know married people but, uh, or, or parents who have both a son and a daughter. But there are people who who deny that there are any differences between men and women. I think largely out of a fear that this would send women back into the into the kitchen and keep them out of the workforce and I do argue that there's no incompatibility between a doctrine of fairness that says that everyone should be judged for their own talents and their own uh, abilities and the possibility that uh, groups of people like men and women aren't exactly the same. That they're, they're, they have overlapping distributions.
0: Now, one of the other areas you're writing that uh, that fascinates me is how you write about children. And uh, to, to what degree is the child a product of genes? To what degree is the child a product of family and environment and education? Uh, you dive pretty deeply into that pool.
1: Yes, uh, and uh, ordinarily we can't tell because we've got our kids and our kids are grow up a lot like us. Uh, the problem is we don't know how much of that is from the way we bring them up and how much of it is because they inherited their genes from us. And we know that people differ in how how nice they are, how nasty, how smart, how dull, how ambitious, how lackadaisical. Uh, and you need special experiments to tease those apart, because in any ordinary biological family, they're they're smushed together. Now, one, one way of telling them apart is to look what happens with adoption. Do the adopted kids resemble the parents who gave them up for adoption that they've never met, or do they resemble their siblings and parents uh, that, that brought them up and with whom they grew up? And in general, I, mean, I think a lesson is that a, a big a chunk of the variation from one person to another is genetic, nowhere near all. But to some extent, how smart you are, how kind you are, how happy you are, uh, how likely you are to get addicted, part of that variation, we have reason to believe, comes from from genes. If, I mean, a simple demonstration is that when you have identical twins separated at birth and brought up in different homes, they're, they're correlated in their personality and their behavior, not nowhere near perfectly, but statistically. On the other hand, we also know that there's got to be a huge amount of the person that depends on their cultural uh, environment. How do we know that? Well, another obvious experiment is immigration. Uh, Someone comes uh, to this country from some part of the world that's very different, and as long as the kids grow up with Americans, they become Americans. Uh, That suggests that your tastes in food and in music and the particular language you speak and your cultural values are all things that you pick up from the environment. Now it doesn't, by the way, necessarily mean you pick it up from your parents. You might pick mm. it up from your peers, but it shows that a lot of uh, cultural learning has to be uh, from the environment.
0: Scientists such as Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins have been identified with a movement known as the new atheism. To to what degree do you share their concerns?
1: Well, I'm. Um, I mean, I, I, I share their atheism. I share their humanism. That is, their belief that uh, an atheist uh, needn't be a, a nihilist uh i tend to be a little less <laughs> rude to, to to organized religions than uh, than than richard Dawkins. uh i think that religions uh over the course of history have been responsible for a lot of uh violence and suffering although i and i think that other but i think that some atheistic ideologies have also been responsible for a lot of uh suffering and and misery like communism and nazism to take two um so and and i think that religions have also, at certain moments in, in history, been responsible for, for uh, very good and progressive uh, developments. Uh, so I would argue for a, uh, a, a humanistic approach to, to human values, uh, of which religions sometimes uh, oppose and sometimes uh, sign on to.
0: You have a, a very esteemed post and a good deal of influence at Harvard University uh, taking that institution as uh, something of, a, of a, an institutional biography. It was begun in, uh, in a worldview of Orthodox Christianity for the purpose of training Christian ministers and is now a very different institution. Is, is, this, is this transition towards a, a secular worldview? Is, is, is this part and parcel of, uh, of higher education as a project?
1: Well, I'd say it's part and parcel of the way that most of the West has been going. I mean, Harvard still has a, certainly has a very vigorous Divinity School, and uh, and and many student societies—a a, a Jewish society, a Catholic, a Protestant, Humanist, uh, Buddhist, and so on. So it's certainly not. Uh, no, no one could call it an atheist institution. But um, but most of the institutions of of government of. Uh, uh science, of, of universities, and even religions themselves have become uh, much less uh, theistic in the sense of positing a God who intervenes in, in everyday affairs. Uh, even religions themselves, of course, have changed over the centuries and over the millennia, uh, and I think the whole society has moved in, in that direction, that, that the concept of God, even within religions, has tended to become more uh, abstract. That uh, most people don't visualize God as the you know the man with the beard who makes good and bad things happen in your lives. I mean, some many people do, but many people who call themselves religious don't think of that kind of God. Uh, so I think it's a broad change of which a university like Harvard is is part of.
0: One of the uh, the. the hallmarks of our contemporary social moment is that uh, there's a good deal of social stratification, a good deal of uh, of, of social distance between different groups. And uh, so it, it's not often that uh, – at least I would assume that you're in conversation with uh, an audience that would be made up uh, largely of evangelical Christians. And I appreciate very much your your conversation with us. I just wonder if you were to to turn to speak specifically to this kind of uh, of audience, what would you want to say?
1: Oh, uh, the I mean, I don't. I certainly wouldn't tailor my message differently to different audiences. But I would. Uh, I suppose the main message is one that you and I have covered in our conversation, namely that uh, um, uh, uh, an atheistic belief is not. It's not uh, anti-human, quite the contrary. uh, That there is a great deal of overlap between uh, secular humanism and uh, the best of religions, namely a um, uh, a concentration on the conditions that make humans uh, flourish. Not just physical pleasure, but uh, knowledge and beauty and wonder and cooperation and peace all of these are purposes that uh, that I like to think transcend some of the divisions between the religious and the secular.
0: On, well, thank you for joining me today. The gift of a conversation is uh, is very gracious in itself. Thank you for joining me today, for thinking in public.
1: It's my pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Well, that was remarkable, was it not? Just to be able to have a conversation with someone and to hear them speak to us, knowing the distance between the two worldviews that are involved when I was in the conversation with Professor Pinker, the first thought I had was that this is the kind of conversation that is all too rare, and it 's the kind of conversation that needs to happen. Far too many evangelical Christians are unaware of this kind of thought and uh, and what it means in terms of not only our cultural moment but The ideological and intellectual trajectory of the age. But it's also good to know that a conversation like this is still possible. Let's think a bit about what it means. Over the course of the last 30 or 40 years or so, Christians have come to understand the importance of worldview. Prior to that fact, when Christians thought of themselves rather safely as an intellectual majority, safely in a majority Christian culture, We really didn't have to give attention to worldview. Worldview emerged from two different developments or at least our concern for it emerged from, first of all, the discovery of what many intellectuals call the other. That is religious diversity, worldview diversity. That came as a product of everything from the age of imperialism and commerce to – well, even the experience of two world wars in which Americans came to be rather forced to observe the fact that there are different worldviews, different ways of conceiving the world, even of understanding what it means to be human. The second reason why this uh, this development of worldview became very important is because of what many Christians rightly perceive as an intellectual displacement in the, in the larger world. We – we are now facing the reality that a good bit of this culture, uh, the the larger intellectual trajectories are not moving towards us but appear to be moving away from us as evidenced in the very brief conversation I had with Professor Pinker about the biography of Harvard University. It, it becomes something of a parable of what happens. The secularization that took place in that one institution is pretty much what we see perceived uh, in the larger world as well. So when you start thinking about that, you recognize – That we're giving attention to worldview not just because we decided to add it as an elective to our other discipleship concerns, but because we understand it's central. Well, let's consider the worldview implications at stake here. One of the things I most appreciate about Professor Steven Pinker is his candor and honesty. He's intellectually courageous. He takes on a good many issues that even many of his colleagues would not take on. He willingly enters into the intellectual fray, and for that, uh, we should be appreciative – He also seems to be rather honest in pulling out the intellectual consequences of his ideas. He is, as he acknowledged, an atheist. He holds to a purely naturalistic understanding of the human being. Now, one of the things I want to note is that if we began with the same premise, I I believe we'd be driven to many of the same assumptions. In other words, he is honest in in really tracking his, his own intellectual outworking of those basic principles. His, his work as a scientist and as a public intellectual are all part and parcel of that larger project. But let's think about the consequences of this. When he denies what he calls the ghost in the machine, making a reference from Descartes, one of the things that becomes most clear is that we are our brains. And, and he said that pretty straightforwardly. Uh, but we're not just a brain in an individual isolation, as he points out, we're brains that are communicating with other brains. Other information is coming into us. I think a part of the brilliance of his contribution is how he does differentiate uh, that kind of physicalism and, and naturalism, uh, what we might even call a biological reductionism, from the, the, the forms that do not take into consideration what it means for that information to come into the process and for us to be accountable. I, I think, nevertheless, in this conversation, uh, I was just reminded again and again of the fact that I cannot deal with these questions without reference to the larger question of cosmic meaning. I cannot bracket that. It is it is an intellectual impossibility to me. So perhaps one of the things we learn from a conversation like this is that among the many ways you can divide human beings, one of them, to put it as bluntly as I think is necessary, is between those for whom cosmic meaning is necessary and those for whom evidently cosmic meaning is not now, when you consider that latter group, isn't it interesting to note the enthusiasm of Professor Pinker's speech, the uh, the, the power of his ideas, uh, the satisfaction he obviously finds in this teaching and, and in this intellectual work? Uh, he he refers to his own form of atheism as a humanistic atheism and uh, obviously he finds great joy in human beings and human relationships and he believes there's a positive obligation to work for human flourishing. And, and so you look at that and you say, OK – Here's where we better be careful in talking about atheism. If we're going to be intellectually honest, we better be careful and say that to our way of thinking, the absence of cosmic meaning does lead to a nihilism. But at least in an operational form, the conversation with Professor Pinker ought to instruct us that in terms of day-to-day life, it does not. Now, even in a conversation like this, it was short and and gracious. I I wonder – As Professor Pinker might wonder about those of us who are hearing him, how we actually think about these things when we close our eyes at night, how we actually think about these things when we're not operating as a public intellectual, but rather we're dealing with one of those events that happens in our lives, one of those questions that erupts in our lives, we simply have to answer. And I find at least it would be impossible to answer the question in any satisfying way without cosmic meaning. Which is to say that I am a Christian theist. I am a believer in in not only the existence of God but in a personal God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and revealed himself in his written scriptures. And and thus the question of cosmic meaning is for me one that is not only necessary but it's settled. I think this is why when we think about the clash of worldviews, we need to understand that uh, sometimes we can talk at each other without actually talking to each other. Talking to each other is a beginning point. I appreciate the graciousness of the investment of time Professor Pinker gave to us in this conversation. I think it certainly helps to draw out some of these conclusions. I mean, after all, I have to say I do not find the uh, the moral agency that is possible in his understanding to be one that is, that is long-term sustainable. I, I still don't understand how a merely physical mind, that is to say a brain – even as it is socially responsible for exchanging information with other brains, can be really held to be morally responsible in the way that I think there's a deep moral knowledge within us that we are morally responsible. You know, when it comes to language, there is so much that that we can learn from these cognitive scientists. Uh, It tells us a great deal about what I would define as being made in the image of God. And and when I asked Professor Pinker, is it it language that distinguishes us from from other sentient or conscious uh, species and animals? He said, yes, but there's more. And, And I'm grateful for the fact that he sees more. But I also think the instrumentality of language there is very, very important. I think it does tell us something about how we were made by a creator in order to communicate with him where it's necessary actually to have a grammar and a rather complex cognitive communication means in order to do that. The, I fully believe that the, uh, that the animals glorify God but they don't know they are and uh, they, they are not communicating and knowing him in the sense that that requires language. I would encourage you to read Professor Pinker's writings, and uh, as you read them, think about the implications, think about the worldview issues that are at stake, and and recognize that it is an intellectual privilege to be able to to share uh, the, the, the process of reading a book, and, and getting to know an author, and coming to terms with his worldview. There are all kinds of questions we should bring to the table as we interrogate a book, as we as we even interrogate ourselves reading a book. But one of the things we should not be afraid of is to read what persons who hold very different worldviews are writing, what they're saying, and come to terms with it. What we do not need for Christians in this generation is an intellectual defensiveness that says we're going to wall ourselves off from these conversations. We need to enter them, engage them, and keep them going. And that means until next time, let's keep thinking. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. For more information, go to my website at albertmuller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmuller. For information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Mary and I and several of our friends are going to be taking a cruise to Alaska, not the Pacific Coast. We'll be doing that July 30 through August 6 this year. We'd love for you to join us. It's going to be an opportunity for intensive Bible study, for wonderful conversation and fellowship. And it would only be better... If you're able to join us, for more information, just go to the website at www.spts.edu. I'll meet you next time for Thinking in Public.